Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. Guest today is Professor Julia Lane. Julia is a professor at the New York University Wagner Graduate School of Public Service and an NYU Fellow for Innovation Analytics. She's a senior advisor in the Office of the Federal CIO at the White House, supporting the implementation of the Federal Data Strategy. She co-founded the Coleridge Initiative, whose goals is to use data to transform the way governments access and use data for the social good through training programs, research projects, and secure data facilities. Julia, welcome. Thank you very much for having me on. I want to start with your recent book, uh, Democratizing Our Data, a Manifesto, where you argue that the federal system of collecting and reporting statistical metrics is broken. Uh, you discuss many issues. Uh, I would like to organize this into maybe a few buckets. The design of metrics, collection of data, statistical analysis of the collected data, and finally decisions made on those reported metrics. Let's start with the design of metrics. Uh, what's wrong here? Let's take GDP as an example. What exactly is a gross domestic product uh, that appears to influence many policy decisions? And if you could put that in a historical perspective, that would be great. That's a, a great way to start out. And, and I actually um, use it in the book, as, as you know, to, to fix ideas. So um, if you think about, and it's very appropriate to be talking about that now when we're dealing with the economic cataclysm that we're facing in terms of unemployment. Yeah. So, um, you know, close to a century ago, uh, there was uh, the Great Depression. It was a cataclysm. And we had no measures of economic activity that could be used to understand the order of magnitude of the impact on the economy. So Herbert Hoover relied on things like freight loadings on the railroad cars yeah. to get a sense of what was going on. And when it came to World War II, we had no way of really understanding how to organize the war effort because we didn't have a good understanding 
of agricultural production and manufacturing production. Yeah. So um, what happened was out of that exigency, uh, a group of academics in the United Kingdom and in the United States um, kind of got pulled into government to develop measures of what was going on in the economy. And that was it was out of that that GDP was developed. And so essentially it counts uh, the economic activity because that was what was needed at the time. Right. And so the point that you make is metrics. Well, the metrics have to come out of an interest in measuring something of value Mm -hmm. to the economy or to society. Back then, it was understanding what was being produced. And that measure, that GDP measure, was very attractive because, you know, it it was one number. Uh, But it kind of got distorted to answer too many questions. Yeah. And our federal statistical system essentially was uh, driven very much by trying to understand economic activity in the United States and in the United Kingdom. Right. So it is uh, still still driven by um, industries that were dominant at that time, like manufacturing and agriculture. And, you know, I sometimes think about this as we don't make many nuts, bolts and peanuts anymore. We actually make information. And um, in such an economy, is the GDP as constructed really relevant? Well, it's a, a lot of economic policy is driven by GDP, but I think there is a lot of discussion that it, it's not a very useful measure for understanding the creation of value in an economy. Yeah. Uh, because there are so many things that are not measured. And of course, the federal statistical system and the economists in general have proposed many, many different ways of improving a measure of what of economic health and social health. The real question and the reason that we talk about the, the federal system being broken is it's very hard to change the way in which we're currently measuring it, as evidenced by the fact that for the past 30, 40 years, people have been trying to change it and, and, it, and it hasn't succeeded. Right. Yeah, it kind of stuck. And um, in your book, you also mentioned that, uh, you know, there are incentives probably in place uh, for all countries to measure this and GDP per capita is, a, is an important metric uh, to, to rate countries and so on. And so it seems like it is something that has stuck uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, even though uh, the way that value is created, as you say, in the economy and more generally in society has changed quite dramatically. That's right. And so pivoting to the current cataclysm, you think about what people are really interested in understanding now. And let's think about, instead of thinking about what we have and why it's not working, let's think about what we want, what we want to measure. Yeah. And how do we design a system that can measure what we need to have measured? So let's talk about right now. Yeah. What we really need to know is um, what's happening to unemployment? How, how are people surviving? 
who's being affected, when are they going to get new jobs, uh, and how do we provide support? Right, right. Yeah, so the measurement of unemployment is kind of the big issue, right? So again, we have some metrics in place, and you have discussed in the book why they may not be uh, may not be useful. It's a sampling process, and maybe it's measuring um, in a very biased way uh, certain things that may not be sufficient to make any kind of policy choices. Exactly. Um, in, in particular. If you think about the way unemployment is measured, it is measured for the federal statistical system, for the, for the national measures, and where we really have the need is at the regional and local level. So just for your listeners, uh, unemployment is measured as actively looking for work in the survey week. Yeah. And employment is being... Uh, the the biggest uh, constituency, there's some with farm and uh, work and family work, but the, the main measure is, were you employed for at least an hour in paid work? Mm-hmm. Now stop for a minute and think about, do we want, is that a reasonable measure? Is that really what we think about when we think about employment? And is that really what we think about with unemployment? And then think about the way in which it's measured. So first thing is, is the construct the right one? Do we, should we be thinking about employment as having a decent wage? Right. Uh, having a wage or a job that is stable for a, for a period of time. Having a job that has upwardly mobile earnings. That's the conversation What of employment that people seem to want is the conversation about a living wage, about inequality. Those kinds of measures are the drivers of the conversation today, but that's not the measure that is consistently measured. Right. And and related to that, obviously, it's a larger question. What exactly is a job? Exactly. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and, and uh, this concept of a job has changed quite dramatically last 10, 15 years. And uh, with COVID, I think it is it is increasingly accelerated toward, um, you know, individuals who are providing services uh, on an as-needed basis. And so, you know, the whole idea of going and working for a corporation for 40 years and retire with a pension uh, is really a very antiquated concept, right? And so... So are we measuring things that we can't really learn much from, nor can we make any policy with, uh, you know, is the, is the issue. That's, ex- that's exactly right. You know, it's not a, a particularly relevant concept for now, and it's not actionable for the people who need to be making policy at the state and local level. It might help the Federal Reserve make decisions but right now, in the current environment, uh, governors need to know where to allocate resources. State and local workforce boards need to know what kind of training to provide and where the jobs might be. And having a national um, uh, unemployment rate get reported of 4.4% at, as it was at the end of April, uh, sorry, for the first uh, week in 
uh, first Friday in April, yeah. uh, when there were, you know, tens of millions of people who had been going on and claiming unemployment benefits. Right. That right. was so out of sync with the what was going on and the need uh, for policymakers, which meant the policymakers were effectively flying blind. Yeah, so so that 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 takes us to the whole question of even if we get the metrics right, even if they are designed properly, uh, there is still the question of how do we execute against that, and you know the whole process of data gathering, and you know I I don't really have a lot of exposure to the to the public arena, um, but in commercial businesses. Um, what we see is that commercial businesses are pretty good in collecting data uh, because they use technologies to do so and they have control over those technologies and they can deploy a lot of people uh, on that process. Um, but it is unclear to me um, ultimately how that data is processed and pushed toward the decision layers. So if you, if you, if you talk a little bit about you know, the, the, the process of collecting data, you know, where, where are the issues we have in the in the public arena? Yeah, I think, um, and I talk about this in, in the book as well. Yeah. Uh, and that the, what I point out is in the private sector, the largest uh, and most profitable firms are data-driven firms. And it's Amazon, Microsoft, uh, Google, Facebook, and so on, Apple. They're, they're all making decisions based on data and evidence that they generate. Yeah. In the public sector, there is a disconnect between the data that are generated from the administration of government programs and the data that are collected by statistical agencies. The statistical agencies are trying to use data better, but it's, it's not gone as quickly as it might have. Yeah. Uh, and in particular, the overwhelming method of data collection is still surveys. Surveys are a really important way of getting information, but it's slow, it's expensive, uh, the response rates are dropping, and they're too expensive to do at the state and local level. And so the, it's been very difficult for the federal agencies to pivot to using administrative data. Yeah. And what that means is uh, that gap has meant that the public sector has been way less data-driven than the private sector. And it means that the cost of delivering public services is way out of scope relative to what the private sector can deliver. Right. So is the, is the primary issue there is a um, lot of different agencies, they're not really integrated together and where decisions are made at the local and regional levels, uh, there isn't sufficient exposure to the type of data they're required to make the right decisions. So both the lack of integration as well as a lack of focus. Yeah, there's, there's three things really. Yeah. It's that is the inability to combine data across agency lines. Right. And that's quite reasonable because of privacy and confidentiality constraints, but there are methods and approaches of, of protecting confidentiality while enabling agencies to do their jobs. Mm -hmm. So to put it, 
practical concept on it. Uh, if I want to know where I need to put a school or where to run a bus line or where to provide emergency services to elderly in the case of, a, of an emergency, uh, yeah. I'd, I'd like to have very detailed granular data. A survey can't do that. But those data exist in the transportation agency, in the school district, uh, in healthcare, and so on. So they need to be able to link the data and protect confidentiality. And there are ways of doing that. I talk about that in the book. Right, right. The second thing is they need to understand the agencies need to get a handle on what the needs are. And that needs to be driven by the people who are providing the services at the coalface. So the people who are making use of the data need to be informed by the people who need to use the data. And they can be different people in the agencies. Right, right. And so then, what is your view on... The third, thing, let yeah. me just, sorry. the third thing is the capacity yeah. of the government workforce to work with the data. So, you know, the private sector is able to pay people several hundred thousand dollars a year. Mm -hmm. uh, the salary scales of public servants is unfortunately not as high. Right, right. Yeah, so... so I want to take a slightly different direction. So what, what is your view on application of technology? Uh, meaning, suppose we have universal internet and each individual has access to um, an information, um, you know, an in information vehicle. Um, is it possible for us to move toward a situation where we don't have to do surveys we can actually get almost not necessarily real time, but feedback at a more frequent basis. And, you know, our technologies like that uh, would allow us to make, um, you know, sort of a step function change to the process that we currently have. Absolutely. Now, you know, you can think about the discussion that's currently happening about tracking the way in which the uh, COVID uh, virus is, the coronavirus is being transmitted. Yeah. With cell phone technology, uh, people using social media to figure out where you are at any given time, whatever. Um, so the private sector uses that routinely. The public sector does not. There are, very, you, you know, the public sector, they're trying to do the right thing and to provide resources. And but the handicap is uh, protecting privacy and confidentiality, which should be at the core. Having ethical use of data should be at the core of any public servant's um, DNA. We, right. They shouldn't become paralyzed as a result of worrying about privacy and confidentiality. So what I argue in the book is... Uh, rather than each agency becoming paralyzed and saying, we can't do that. Now, yeah. how you build an infrastructure. So what I call for in the book is two things. One is treat this like the Manhattan Project. Instead of having um, your entire public sector paralyzed and using, you know, 1990s technology, think about this as a Manhattan Project. We need to have better data in order to respond to every 
need that citizens have, the data exist. We need to figure out how to use it in a in a in an honourable and ethical way. That technology exists. Right. Set up a national lab for community data, where you bring together um, top of the line computer scientists, social scientists, and domain experts to build the new measures and the new metrics the same way that a hundred years ago GDP was developed. Right. Then the second piece is build the equivalent to the ag extension program that transformed agricultural productivity a uh, hundred years ago as well by farmers working with universities to answer questions about how do I uh, farm more efficiently? How do I use data and evidence to, to do my farming? That's what it's turned into. And then the extension programs connected the questions with the researchers and trained the farmers how to do things better. So it was a it was a multi-way conversation that happened. Right, right. Yeah, so there, there, there's obviously there's a natural tension between privacy and innovation. And, uh, and you know, that is what is causing us uh, to kind of fall behind in healthcare, for example. Um, and, and similar things, I, I believe, in the, in the federal system, um, both, both the requirement of privacy and ethical consideration of data uh, might dampen innovation. So, so I guess the, the technology question is, uh, we may need technologies that assure that Sure. Uh, in a much better way than we currently have, it sounds to me, right? And, you know, there are models. Uh, we've been building an administrative data research facility in, uh, um, in the College Initiative, uh, and yeah. that has been set up to enable different government agencies to share their data in a, in a, a confidential setting. The data are de-identified, they're encrypted, uh, they're matched. They're only used for statistical purposes. There's uh, the cybersecurity requirements. So um, that's the point of having like a national lab where the uh, top of the line security techniques are applied rather than um, and shared across agencies so that you don't have each little agency on its own boat trying to figure out the problems on their own. Yeah. Right, yeah. So the, the next step in the process, so even if we design the metrics correctly, even if we use technology or other process changes to collect the right data, there is still the issue of once you get that raw data, raw material, how is that data processed? Uh, as, as people say, you can make data lie using statistics anytime. Uh, it, it offers sort of flexibility. And so, 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 you know, what are we missing there? How do we process data? Uh, are there significant issues that currently, currently happen? You know, you are asking such great questions. I'm going to make you an honorary social scientist. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly the right question. So, you know, um, one of my co-authors was Jack Malberger, who was the science advisor to President Bush. He was a physicist. Um, and he used to say, the science emperor has no clothes. <laughs> and so what he meant by that is, uh, everyone says, oh, 
uh, I rely on science and evidence and data. Now, the dirty secret is, is the amount, and Johnny Anidas at Stanford has, has made so many good articles about this, uh, so very little of the research that is done is reproduced. And yeah. so a lot of it's wrong. So as you yelled at statistics, which hurts my uh, very sensitive feelings, uh, but a lot of a lot of the science. <laughs> if you think again about this coronavirus, um, you know, Lauren said, "Well, the science says X." Well, no, there was a lot of scientific discussion, which some of which said X and some of which said Y. Um, right. And and I think the the good scientists were busy saying, "Well, you know." we really don't have enough data to make a lot of judgments. We, If you think about what was going on, we didn't have the baseline population, we didn't have the infection rate, we didn't have the transmission rate, we didn't have so many things that were required to write good models. So um, what really needs to be done is yeah. not only the data that need to be linked, not only do the measures need to be developed, not only does the analysis need to be done, but in order to be confident that the numbers make sense, you yeah. need to have reproducibility and replicability. So you need to have multiple people having access. Now, the wonderful thing about having professional federal statistics is you had a cohort of highly trained, highly skilled, and by and large, um, dedicated professionals who were yeah. devoted to making sure that the statistics were longitudinally correct, that the measures made sense and so on. So, but, you know, we don't have the time to do that. And it takes a lot of, it, you know, it slows things down by a couple of years. So would you rather have kind of close enough measures that you can work on now because the the questions are now rather than waiting three years, like with the American Community Survey. And I think part of the answer to your question is you need to have lots of eyes on the data. You don't need to have kind of a high priest making decisions about what to have and, and what is high quality. You right. just need to have many eyes on the problem. So that's the access issue. That's right. And, and like you say, replicability. So, you know, it's ironic, uh, Julia, that, you know, sometimes I feel like uh, now everybody's a data scientist. Uh, in fact, our politicians are data scientists, too, just that they don't need data, <laughs> uh, but, but they're, they're still data scientists. Uh, and well, well, they, <laughs> they have an uncle who is a bit smart. <laughs> yeah, the, the problem with data science is that it is very easy to make models, actually, um, because there are a lot of tools out there. And, you know, if, if you say, well, I'm going to make a model and it's going to predict what precisely is going to happen. And then, by the way, I'm going to put a big uncertainty band around it. So I say it's going to be 10, but it could be between zero and 59. Um, it is interesting. I mean, it, you know, it could make uh, pretty pictures, but it has no decision value. Right, so what I see, I'm, I'm stepping back into the commercial arena and I want to revisit this. Um, yes, companies have hired a lot of data scientists. Uh, they're doing a lot of modeling, but it's really unclear to me if 
if we are missing, you know, sort of the, the foundations of statistics. Uh, and, and the way to make sure, uh, you know, we're not making silly mistakes is, is exactly what you say. Um, are the results replica replicatable? Are there enough people uh, looking at the problem? You know, those types of things, right? And, and I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I think there is an infrastructure for that in the federal, um, federal arena. It's just that it's not mobilized properly. A am I reading this correctly? I think that's right. I think uh, the, the fun thing with the federal data strategy has been that it has brought, first of all, it's focused attention. And um, I, I want to give a shout out to all the terrific people in the federal government who leaned in and uh, put together that federal uh, data strategy action plan. You should go online and take a look at it. Yeah. Principles. So it's on strategy.data.gov. Um, the the analysis and the reports are a credit, I think, to the federal system. Um, but I think the point that comes in from the um, question that you posed is, I actually don't like the term a data scientist. <laughs> I think uh, data science is a team sport. You need and it goes back to your opening question. You need someone who understands what questions need to be asked. If you take a look at the federal data strategy, they say, you know, what are your priority questions and what are the data that are needed? Then the second thing is you need someone who understands the data. That might be different from the person who understands the questions. Yes. And you're going to need multiple of those because especially when you're linking data across agency lines, education data, housing data, uh, labor data, very different, very different data de generating functions, very different coverage. Then you need someone who knows how to code. So that's where you need the computer scientist. But that is not the be all and end all. They are one piece of a data science team. And yeah. then you need someone who knows exactly what you just said, Gil, which is how do I present the data in a way that it can be used, which captures the inherent um, uncertainty that surrounds any estimate that comes about because the measures are measuring an underlying, they're trying to get at an underlying latent construct like what is a job, what is unemployment. But we need, yes. we need teams of people to come to grips with it. And maybe it's five measures of employment. Maybe it's got a job, got a job above an earnings threshold, got a job that uh, earns a living wage. That, so we need a reconceptualization of what we're trying to measure in the same way that almost a century ago, the people were trying to figure out how to measure economic activity, Simon Kuznets and the researchers that I talked about earlier. Right, right, yeah. It's, um, you know, so, so there's sort of a status quo measurement problem uh, but it's also intricately connected with long-term policy question. For example, you know, suppose you ask universal basic income, uh, is, is, uh, is that a good policy? And I don't believe we have sufficient data or even analysis to, you know, to, to, um, to answer that question. Uh, but those types of questions are intricately linked with the tactical status quo measurements that we are trying to accomplish, right? 
because the, 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 the primary question, what is a job and what type of jobs will exist tomorrow and how do people view jobs and how do people value or, or you know, how do they think that they're adding value to economy and society? All those questions are interrelated. And so, you know, I sometimes struggle with, you know, we, we have to do the basic blocking and tackling because we know that, you know, uh, things are broken at, at that level. But simultaneously, I think we have to get skills into the process. Like you say, there's decision sciences there, there's statistical analysis, there's computer, uh, computing, you know, coding type skills. Uh, these skills are very, very different. So you need a, a group of people with diverse skills to come together. And I would think that included in that skill set uh, are also skills thinking about sort of the long-term future of, of policy, um, which, you know, sometimes uh, we don't pay enough attention to, I think. That's right. And, and I keep pushing this in the book as well, which yeah. is our whole focus has been national statistics. But where we really need a lot of these decisions is local and and state and regional statistics and measurement. Mm. And they could be like with the ag extension program, they could be very different. And this is a very heterogeneous country, right? So yeah, in yeah. Texas, the uh, ag extension might focus on cattle, right? And in Wisconsin on apples, right? I'm making it up, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> they have different areas of interest. So it, it may be that um, thinking about what something as obvious as population means in um, the Southwest United States might be a very different thing than in the central part of the country. How do you deal with transient workers or migrant workers? Do you count them as part of the? So there could be a whole set of questions where people in different parts of the country develop different expertise, different sets of measurement, and you could imagine a network of state agencies and universities coming up with different metrics, sharing them with other agencies across the country. Um, and, uh, you know, but like the 4-H program, you, you build uh, the capacity in the communities to understand the measures and suggest new ones that aren't questions right. that the local areas have I go going back how do I best train the students in my schools where do I put the schools you know those kinds great great and sharing best practices right across the uh, across different states and in different localities I want to touch on one more thing uh, Julia and that is you know in the commercial arena sometimes uh, where decision makers fail uh, is when they fail to understand uncertainty. And so, you know, a lot of what business schools teach, for example, uh, are very much rooted on determinism, right? We have cash flows and we have forecasts that are point estimates. And, and we know things are not going to evolve like that. Uh, there's uncertainty around all those, all those potential measurements. And, and so how do we internalize uncertainty and how do we make decisions or policy choices that 
that uses uncertainty as, as an unavoidable criteria, right? There are two types of uncertainties there. One is, you know, we typically see in our estimations and the other is, you know, sometimes referred to as a black swan effects, right? Um, which is, um, you know, uh, something that, that happens uh, with a very low probability, but if it, when it happens, it has, a, has the potential of making a huge, uh, huge impact. And so in the, if you kind of push it to the last frame of this, this process in terms of decision-making, suppose we are successful in getting the right metrics, right data, right analysis in front of the decision-makers, what else needs to be done there to assure that we get the right policies? Again, <laughs> what a great question. So a part of it is also going to be to educate decision-makers to some extent. And I think you can do that. Um, we, we have a tremendous opportunity. We have these public policy schools. Uh, yeah. You know, and your analogy with the uh, business schools is right on the money. So we have executive MBA classes in which you train business people up in, you know, how to think through different scenarios and different um, aspects. We throw um, senior executives in at the gov at government with very minimal training in how to understand statistics and modeling and data. And yeah. I think uh, developing in public policy schools training like exec ed training classes for senior executives so they can understand the information that's being presented in them the focus on dashboards data dashboards is is a nice one in many ways but what they mm -hmm. need to have is they need to have the micro data what i refer to as the micro data that go back they're the, they're the cables that go back to the micro data engine in the dashboard just like in the car Maybe, yeah, yeah. And, and then they would um, understand how to build the capacity in their workforce to answer the questions that they might have. And so building that capacity, building it into agency budgets, yeah. making data and capacity at the core of the operations of an agency from the senior level down to the very you know, most junior person is at the core of the federal data strategy and it should be at yep. the core of state and local governments as well and they should budget for it. Right, right, yeah. And and let me um let me close with a perhaps a controversial question, <laughs> Julia. So um, you know, when we think about policy, it, it is so complex now, health, energy, environment, education. Um, do you think politicians, I mean, you can get the bureaucracy right, you can get the bureaucracy educated, uh, competent, but if the politicians don't understand this at even the basic level, uh, things may not work, right? So my question is, are we coming to a position that we need to, we need to have some basic competence test you know, for politicians before they... <laughs> before they assume, you know, some kind of an office that, um, you know, that has a significant impact on policy? You know, <laughs> again, 
you, you kind of like to see that. As you can tell from my accent, I'm not from New York. Yep. They, I'm from New Zealand. And the, um, we actually have developed in New Zealand a, a very um, good data infrastructure that can help inform decisions. I think uh, every politician is going to understand trade-offs. What you've seen in New Zealand is the ability of the civil servants to provide the information to um, decision makers in a way that they can, that makes sense. I think it's going to be a lost cause to try and train politicians in, <laughs> <laughs> in how to think about data and evidence. I think our best bet is to train the people who put information in front of the politicians in a way that's going to make sense to them. That's right. That's right. A lot of pictures. A lot of pictures. <laughs> and yes. A lot of options. <laughs> <laughs> this was great, Julia. So I really appreciate appreciate the time you spent uh, spent with Okay. Me. Thank you. For, and, uh, and let me advertise my book one more time: "Democratizing Our Data: A Manifesto," coming out with MIT Press. Excellent. Excellent. I thoroughly enjoyed reading it as well. Thanks Thank so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.